Welcome to the Safety Doc Podcast with author, radio host, and nationally recognized safety expert, Dr. David Perodin. Join us each week as we discuss the best and most bizarre practices in safety preparation and crisis response. Follow Dr. Perodin on Twitter at SafetyPhD. And remember, the truth will keep you safe. This is Dr. David Proden, and I want to thank you as we begin another journey into school and community safety. If you're looking for industrial safety expert, Appalachian State University professor, Dr. Timothy Ludwig, please visit www.safety-doc.com. Again, that's Dr. Timothy Ludwig at www.safety-doc.com. Com. License renewal time, driver's license. I went to the DMV yesterday and there are new requirements for renewing a driver's license. So, you know, line is six, seven deep and people are going up to the attendant and, you know, in about 30 seconds they're leaving. <laughs> and what's happening is they're being told, hey, you have to bring in your um, social security card. You have to bring in your notarized birth certificate from the hospital and, you know, other documents. And I didn't have these either. And actually they weren't on the website. So a uh, little bit of a, <laughs> I just, I just do it. I just do it coming in. And, uh, so some of these people are frustrated and there's a guy ahead of me, um, get sent to the side and he's trying to negotiate with the attendant. And he said, hey, I had a, I had to drive 40 minutes to get here. And can we do like part of this now? And then I can like bring back the documents. And she's like, sir, it doesn't work that way. And then, you know, he's kind of going off on this rant. Now he's not like over the top, but he's like still trying to engage her in negotiations while she's clearly helping somebody else. <laughs> and then finally he just takes off. Uh, fortunately for me, I only live a mile from the DMV. So... <laughs> I just went back and, and got the documents and everything's done, you know, now. The new license has a star up in the right-hand corner, which allows you to go on military bases and I think any Department of Defense installation. So um, got that done. Good for another eight years, which is great. Um, so yeah, a pretty painless process actually because I didn't live that far away. But boy, oh boy. <laughs> It was just one person after another getting getting sent out the door to retrieve documents. And, and one person was saying, well, I moved here from like Nebraska 20 years ago, and I'm not exactly sure like where I was born and stuff like that. And the tenant's like, well, you're going to have to figure that one out and, and kind of come back to us. So um, anyway, new license. Yay. Um, I've, I've been running into the blue screen of death here on my Windows 7 machine. And as you might know from previous podcasts, as multiple uh, hard drives, solid state, everything is just like, you know, intense here. It's crazy, three monitors. Um, so I'm not sure what's happening. Ran into this issue for the first time about two months ago. Then it kind of subsided. I did my Windows updates and now it's, it's back. So I... I'm going to disconnect the main desktop unit after this podcast is out and then take it in for repair. Hopefully it won't require a full 
uh, reinstall, which the repair person told me that's what I might be in, in store for. So <laughs> we'll see. So there, there could be some time between episode 75 and episode 76. Um, got my laptop actually back from the computer person, um, all tuned and ready to go. But the laptop isn't set up to do this type of, of broadcasting. And so we're, we're going to wait we got to go a little bit of, of time. There's always 75 episodes you can go through of the Safety Doc or check in to the other shows on the405media.com out of Los Angeles, California, where the Safety Doc airs 2 p.m. PST daily. I biked 70 miles today. Longest bike trek of the year. Perfect day, 80 degrees, um, low to moderate humidity, a nice light wind. It was terrific. And I had worked up to this, um, so it was it was actually an easy ride, and um, and it, I saw a number of deer again, saw a few squashed snakes. So I thought they'd be out because, you know, it's a little bit cooler, uh, so they would come out and warm themselves on the pave the pavement, you know, the blacktop. So, which apparently a big mistake. Um, I, my turnaround point was a cemetery, right? Guess, because I, I kind of get into these, you know, country cemeteries. Um, and it was, it was an odd experience because I, I pulled up and at the same time I pulled up with my, my bike, uh, man, I would say in his mid thirties, uh, pulls up in a, in a nice pickup truck, gets out, he's wearing khakis and a dress shirt. And so basically at the halfway point is, you know, I, I'm taking some Gatorade, uh, beef jerky, and, and just, you know, some provisions and, and just resting a little bit before I start the ride back home. And about 20 feet from where I'm standing, so I'm, I'm kind of parked next to the fence where the cemetery is, um, I notice that there is a grave site where the, the coffin is is there. Um, lowered in, and this, of course, a pile of dirt. And I assume it probably had to be dug by hand because it was very tight, like many gravestones and older gravestones around where this gravestone was. So it's not like you could bring in machinery and and excavate. Um, so this guy, th- this is just is weird because uh, so you know he waves to me and wave back, um, and uh, he goes over and unbuttons his dress shirt. And like lays it over a different headstone, and then he grabs a shovel, and he starts shoveling the dirt into the hole where the coffin is. And you know, after you know a couple minutes, he would take a, a break and grab a tamper, uh, which is a device. Um, basically, they use it for pitchers' mounds to kind of compact the soil, but you can you, basically he's compacting the soil before he puts more in. And it was just the strangest thing because I'm like, wow, one is this guy's overdressed for this task. <laughs> and uh, it, it, it just, it was really, it was really strange. Um, so I had, you know, it, it just seemed really, it just seemed really out of place. Uh, but yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm sure that's what was going on. Maybe he was, works for the funeral home, funeral director, mortician. I don't know. Um, definitely because he, the way he was dressed, I mean, it was because he was dressed formal and had a very nice vehicle. I don't think he was just, you know, like a, a, you know, lower tier employee with a funeral 
home or the the cemetery or, or whatever. So, um, but yeah, as I was as I was kind of taking my Swedish fish and crackers and things like that, he was he was putting the dirt on this casket. Just kind of a weird weird backdrop. And we didn't we didn't say anything. Like I didn't talk to him. And what what do you say to somebody like? <laughs> How's it going today? Like, you know, and there was nobody else there. Um, again, it's rural. Um, so, yeah, just that, that was strange. We did a one-day family vacation, which actually turned out great. Um, went to Dubuque, Iowa, and took in the Mississippi River Museum and also the Fenelon Place Elevator. So, Arrive there. It's about two hour drive from where we're at. Maybe just a little bit longer, and and those were the two things on the agenda. And we stayed um, right downtown, so we could walk from where we stayed. Um, we could walk to the Fenelon elevator. So anyway, let, let's talk about this Mississippi River Museum. So if you get to Dubuque, it's a, it's a pretty neat town. Like I, I I like Dubuque. I could actually imagine myself living there which I don't think will ever happen, but I mean, you know, um, what, you know, about 60,000 people, I think. Um, and it's the oldest city in Iowa. Anyway, you came into the, the Mississippi River Museum, which, um, which is very well done. I mean, it's, it's I really, I, so I wanted this experience for my, my daughters, you know, this is why I wanted to do this trip because they are really into, um, museums and we go, um, often, to a uh, Great Lakes Museum up in Superior, but we're not going to Superior this year. So, you know, we kind of switched out this one instead. So it, it was good. It was good. And as we got there, they had all these signs up that they had the Da Vinci display in addition to the traditional whatever you get through the Mississippi River Museum, which is, you know, got a bit pet stingrays, you know, with two fingers on their back um, as they, they swam by you and stuff like that. I mean, it, it was it was good. I mean, it was good. Good for kids. Um, and then you also, you also had the opportunity to go on a dredge, a originally steam-powered dredge from 1934. I think they used it until the 70s, and then they retired it. So that that was neat, you know. So for me, that was that was kind of a neat part. Um, but anyway, we're, we're getting our tickets, and the, the lady who's selling us the tickets is, is really pushing this Da Vinci display, and she's pointing then a little bit in back of us to this kind of wagon with like some extra gears and stuff on it. And she's like, well, that's something like, you know, like Da Vinci made. And are you familiar with, you know, Leonardo? I'm like, yeah, yeah, I kind of got it. You know, I know inventor and all this stuff and whatever artists and things like that. And she said, well, you know, nothing we have here is like authentic Da Vinci stuff. It's all like replica. But so, you know, do you want to pay so you can get to the floor where this is at and, and to see these things? And I'm like, which was which was kind of substantially more, um, and I was like, no, you know, we I, we I've kind of I've got it, and you know, for the girls, it's not going to be that big of a thing. And she was pretty like put off by that. <laughs> she's I mean, she's doing hard sell on, on the Da Vinci thing, and and like I get it, like I get, it. And, and I'm I'm kind of and I'm trying to figure out like how do, the hell do these two things go together? Like how does how does your Mississippi River Museum, which is really more or less an aquarium. You know, and artifacts, Native American artifacts. Again, it's, it's well done, but I mean, to to couple that up with this Da Vinci display it doesn't doesn't seem like, like that like that works. Um, so, and an odd thing was like 
I, I don't think you got a specific pass to go up there. Like if we saw people go up who had the same um, badges that we were given that you, I, I mean, basically it's a, a sticker that you wear. And then after a certain number of hours, I think it turns from green to white and that's not any good anymore. But, um, but yeah, I, th- I think people are going up with the same sticker. I don't, I, I don't know, but um, yeah, we turned down the Da Vinci display and kind of ruined this lady's day, but I, I can't imagine. I mean, like I said, it was $10, maybe $10 more, something like that, um, per person. I mean, but it, again, I have girls that are seven and 11, like they would have no interest in that. And I've personally, yeah, it, I, I didn't have an interest in it either. <laughs> so, um, the Fenelon Place Elevator. If you can Google this, it, it, I'm just it is the Fenelon Place Elevator is described as the world's shortest, steepest scenic railway, 296 feet in length, elevating passengers 190 feet from Fourth Street to Fenelon Place, where you, uh, you you can see this magnificent view of the Dubuque area, um, also Mississippi River. So it's it's really cool. We have the the attendant that day. Um, was a photographer years ago, and she, that's what she shared with us. So she took our our phone and, and took some phenomenal photos. And actually, she said, because of the time of day we were there and, and the cloud cover, it was almost like a shadow box effect, she said, which is really cool. Like, is like a, And the photos turned out awesome. So this Fenelon Place elevator is pretty cool because it's like a little, it's almost like a small trolley car type thing, and it's just pulled up and down. Um, this hill and basically it, it was there because I think in the 1880s it was a, a banker who lived at the top of the hill and he had to like work his way around down to the bottom of the hill to get to work and then also over the lunch break to get up for lunch and that would eat up a lot of his time so he needed something more efficient so he came up with this this elevate you know this I think it's called a funicular actually um, this this to get him up and down the the to from his house to his, his work. So, you know, three minutes instead of whatever. So it's cool. You, you sit in this wooden car and then your level, you know, once you sit in, even though like the thing is done in, on an angle, like the seats are level, so then you go up and down. So that was cool. Like really, I really like that. Again, it was a good experience for the girls. Glad they had that opportunity to do it. We could walk it again from the hotel, which made it, um, made it I, nice, you know, that you didn't have to fire up a car try to find a parking spot and stuff like that. And, um, yeah, because it, it, it's one of those things that you have to do, like if you're in Dubuque, like, you, you know, you, you just got to do the Fenelon Place Elevator. So check it out. F-E-N-E-L-O-N Place Elevator. You ever get to Dubuque, check it out. Thank you for tuning in to the Safety Doc Podcast with the nation's leading safety expert, Dr. David Perodin, author, radio show host, university instructor, researcher, expert witness, and consultant. Powerful testimonials. Dr. Perodin has a strong reputation as the go-to safety consultant, and he was still able to exceed our expectations. When we went looking for an expert in the field of crisis preparedness and prevention, David was the single person we pursued. Not easy stepping into the touchier subjects of life, but Dr. David pulls it off. Take a listen. Now, 
back to Dr. David Perodin and the Safety Doc Podcast. So today's show, for the first time, I opted for yes on the organ donor part of my driver's license. Previously, I'd always done no. This time I did yes. Um, and I, I hadn't thought about it much when I was doing it. Like I, you know, when I, when I filled out all of the, the stuff on the form and it got to the organ donor, I was like, well, you know, I've, I've shared this on previous podcasts of, I don't, I think the older I get, I, I, I get more scientific and I'm just, I'm not into all of the, the maybe ritual, the, the tradition of, you know, funerals and all of these things and whatever. Um, and the thought was, well, you know, if my, something happens to me and there's an opportunity to take parts of me <laughs> to help somebody else, that just seems like that makes sense. And I would want that um, if I or my family members, you know, needed a liver or heart or something like that. So um, it didn't seem to make sense to not be an organ donor. Last night, um, well, before I get that, I, I have an administrative assistant, a former administrative assistant of mine, has, has been on a waiting list for a liver transplant, and she has a non-alcohol-related cirrhosis of the liver, which you know, which you can get. Um, of course, you can get. But so you know, you think cirrhosis of the liver, though you think, oh, someone who's just you know drank their entire life. Well, no, there is this non-alcohol-related cirrhosis of the liver. So she's been on this waiting list um, for a organ transplant for a liver, and for a while. I mean, for I would say a couple of years. Um, so anyway, you know, I don't think about this choice of, of donor until last night. I'm on the Older Brother podcast as one of the panel members with, you know, about five other people. And um, I had mentioned that that day I renewed my license and I also check the donor box. And, and pretty much every member of the panel, maybe except one, they, they were pretty adamantly opposed to donating their organs. And they were kind of like, well, why did you do that? Like that, why, why would you check? Yes. And, um, I was like, well, I didn't expect that. I just, uh, okay. And then they're, they're like, you know, they, they haven't checked. Yes. You know, they've, they've are not donating organs and, um, their primary reason for this. And, you know, so this is, again, I'm just, I wasn't thinking about this. Um, but their primary reason, they said, was, Dave, do you think, you know, if you're in a car accident, EMTs pull up and, you know, whatever, um, and they see, you know, that you're, you're pretty severely damaged. Um, and if you're an organ donor, you know, they pull your ID. Are they going to work as hard to save your life um, as if you're not an organ donor? And I think George Carlin had some bit about that. I know he had some bit about that because I found it. And I thought, yeah, I think so. I mean, I, I, I no AMTs. I don't think that's a condition that they would use on whether or not they're going to work to save your life. Um, but they were pretty convinced, you know, that the EMTs and also the doctors, that the incentive to save your life if you're an organ donor was diminished. 
Um, and there, there's also, they were sharing, you know, it's really, there's this lucrative side too of like organ um, for hospitals, you know, of organ transplanting. In the U.S., you can't sell organs, you know, in other countries you can, uh, but in the U.S., you can't. But of course, um, you know, if doctors are doing these transplants, I mean, there's this whole, you know, industry that has to be there for organ transplants as far as tr- of transporting the organs, um, as far as, you know, medications for accepting, um, you know, not rejecting the, the organ tissue. Um, the doctors are getting paid. Obviously, the hospital's getting paid. I don't know where all of that comes from, but they're saying, you know, this is lucrative business. So um, I'm thinking, oh, like I didn't, again, I didn't know about that, didn't think about that. So I, I'm going to just kind of s- skip to the end and come back as, like, I'm not arguing against um, organ donation, and ultimately, all of this didn't change my mind. I'm not going back and saying, please issue me a new license without the box checked. Uh, but it is one of those things where it's a pretty significant decision, obviously, a very significant decision. And, you know, when you have, it's something I, I didn't anticipate, you know, and I, where my member check, my friends would kind of have this pullback reaction. Um, so it's one of those things where then, you know, I'm doing my own research and most of it's coming up positive and some of it's coming up with some really bizarre stories. But, you know, I think that can happen anywhere. I mean, that can happen, you know, you can always find these stories that, that match, you know, the, the narrative. Like, I think I, I, I watched on TV once a funeral home, which, um, would take uh, bones from people and and sell them, um, and then they would put in like PVC pipe or something like that. I mean, which was all obviously illegal and things like that. Um, those people weren't donors, uh, but anyway. So this kind of took me back, um, or I was taken aback, I guess, and uh, did some research. So again, this is the first time I heard anything like this. Like, you know, the, so doctors aren't going to work as hard to save me if I'm a donor. And, you know, the EMTs, you know, if they see that in the card, you know, they're only going to go so far into what they're going to do and, and all of this stuff. So, um, so again, I went online, found most of the stuff was positive uh, about, you know, organ donation. But there were a couple things that were a little questionable. Um, as, again, I would I would expect with anything. I mean, just, you know, um, here is an article by Gizmodo, which I think sums up kind of what my friends were saying. So I'm going to read it it's short. It's called The Dark Side of Being an Organ Donor by Jamie Condliff uh, from March 12th, 2012. Uh, by the way, the... So today I was I was biking through one of the cemeteries and there was one of the the coolest um, last names on a headstone. I think it was Fogman, F O G G M A N. And I was just thinking, man, if you're like in high school and your name is like David Fogman, like that's cool, okay? <laughs> so I'm wondering like the Fogman family. Um, that I was just like that is I've never heard that name before and it's it's kind of a cool kind of a cool name so um, but anyway okay let's let's go through this article 
Becoming an organ donor is widely considered a good thing. If you die and offer up your body to medicine, you can extend the life of others with zero inconvenience. After all, you're dead. But it turns out that the reality of organ donation isn't quite so crystal clear, and that it's something you might want to lend a little more thought to. Becoming an organ donor is easy. Just tick a box in your driver's license or fill in a simple form. You may not know that you waive your rights to informed consent at that stage. Doctors don't have to tell your relatives where your organs go or what they do to your body to extract them. You have few legal rights. You're dead. Remember. Yeah, that's not too bad, though. I can live with that. But writing for the Wall Street Journal, Dick Teresi raises a more interesting point. The majority of organ donors are victims of head trauma who end up being ruled dead based on brain dead criteria, brain death, okay? And brain death diagnoses, uh, it's not exactly a clear science. The exam for brain death is simple. A doctor splashes ice water in your ears to look for shivering in your eyes. Okay, didn't know that. Pokes your eyes with a cotton swab and checks for any gag reflex, among other rudimentary tests. It takes less time than a standard eye exam. Finally, it's what's called the apnea test. The ventilator is disconnected to see if you can breathe unassisted. If not, you are brain dead. Some or all of the above tests are repeated hours later for confirmation. So here, here's the weird part, which is actually in the article I'm reading this. Here's the weird part. If you fail the apnea test, your respirator is reconnected. You'll begin to breathe again, your heart pumping blood, keeping the organs fresh. Doctors like to say that at this point, the person has departed the body. You will now be called a BHC or beating heart cadaver. Get new to me, hadn't heard that. The problem is plenty of BHCs still have brain waves. The bigger problem is that very, very occasionally, BHCs even start breathing again by themselves. Whether they're actually dead or not, well, that's up for debate. It's that uncertainty that many people are, quite rightly, starting to worry about. For a deeper insight, you should read Teresi's article. It's really quite thought-provoking. In the meantime, I'm remaining a donor, but hoping for a lack of imminent head trauma. Again, that was by Jamie Conlift from Gizmodo. So I didn't know that. I mean, it seems like something that you should be made aware of um, at the at the DMV. Like, um, it's almost the fact. It, well, some countries actually have um, an opt. You have to opt out of being an organ donor. You're automatically in. Of you're in the pool. You know of being an organ donor unless you explicitly opt out. And in the U.S., you know, you you have to opt in. Um, so just just an interesting sidebar that I learned. But one of the, the questions that came up in this, I went to that other article by the Wall Street Journal person, and it was, you know, saying, well, what if, what if you can perceive, what if you can feel your organs being harvested? You can still perceive pain, but you can't express it, you know, through eye movements or, you know, any, anything, but you, you can sense these things. And I'm like, well, I, I don't know. I mean, so he poses that question. It's like, well, but then, I mean, 
if that's the case and you're declared dead, I mean, everything that happened to you at that point, you would perceive, <laughs> you know, you, you could perceive, you know, whether, whether it be, if you choose, not if you choose, if it, if it, if you had, if you were embalmed that you'd feel that to a certain extent, um, it, it, it's really strange. It's really strange. So, you know, it gets into all of these weird things of like, how long does consciousness really exist, I guess, in the brain or the mind, even when the instruments that we currently have can't register that the mind, quote unquote, the brain, quote unquote, is, is alive, is, is responding, is processing. So, um, yeah, it's a good question. And, you know, I think the equipment will get better at determining that. But, um, but again, it's, it's, it's a very, here's, here's what strikes me with this. Um, it seems we should be more informed about this at the DMV. So doesn't it seem that way to you? I mean, it seems that way to me, like there should be either a pamphlet about what is organ donation and, and some of the, these, these types of thoughts, like the pros and cons. I don't know if this is a con, but just like something that's informed or that before you become an organ donor, you, you have to watch a three minute video. And I guess it's all positionality because they could skew it any way that they want it. And they would probably skew it obviously to get you to be a door or uh, organ donor. seems like it's weird that the DMV kind of gets put in charge of that. Like why your primary physician isn't, like I've never been asked once by my doctor, do you want to be an organ? Are you an organ donor? No. Well, do you want to learn about being an organ donor? Do you have any questions? Like my doctor has never said that. My doctor is really on top of things too. So um, I do have a doctor's appointment next month routine and I'm going to ask this question of my doctor of saying, you know what? I um, had my license renewed and I did opt to be a donor, but then I kind of learned some things after the fact that just have brought forward some questions in my mind and, you know, just kind of run it by her and be interesting to see what she says. Like, you know, what if a doctor says, no, I'm not a donor. <laughs> I mean, I'm like, whoa, then I'd be like, okay, I wonder, I wonder what's up with this. But, um, but yeah, that's, that's my plan is I'm going to just run this by. And again, I don't really, I don't have plans to change the decision, but it does seem like this huge thing that's kind of put before you. And I guess the, in your family, really, you know, there's this, you know, that this impact you're, you're having because hypothetically, you know, you could, you could be in an accident and then your body would be, um, you know, kept in the hospital and, and blood going, you know, through veins and stuff like this for a period of, of, time i don't know a couple days maybe i i don't know what the what the time is but um while they prepare to harvest your organs so instead of like dying and then like you know you're dead and okay the body's released cremated gone quickly like that that it kind of lingers and then you know and then it's kind of like this weird thing i remember reading a book by dave perry 
don't know if his name is Dave Perry. Perry, Michael Perry, right? Not everybody's name is Dave, right? Um, Michael Perry wrote a book. Um, he's an author in Wisconsin. Um, and I forget what it was, like Population 512 or something like that. Talked about a small town he lived in, and he was an EMT and talked about those experiences plus like other things. But, um, and once you'd respond and put the res- the resuscitating, you know, device on somebody, it gave the appearance that they were kind of breathing on their own. And he said that was something where, um, people would, you know, family members and that they'd almost be relieved to see that. And, that wasn't the case. You know, it was just the fact that they had been intubated and this machine was making it um, appear that they're breathing on their own when it was just pumping air in and out and their lungs were inflating and deflating. So, you know, you saw this motion which replicated somebody breathing. So he said that that was always something where you had to kind of tell people what was going on um, in a tactful way because they would they would kind of get their hopes up like, oh, they're breathing now. Well, no, they're not. So um, here were the cons that I found regarding um, why not to donate. Okay, now, of course, there's, there's plenty of pros. I mean, in most of the websites, and we all know that, um, To I, I talked about my former administrative assistant waiting for you know, a, a liver and the fact that, you know, if, if you're, if my body is, you know, if, if I'm dead um, and there are parts of my body that can help somebody else out, why not? You know, so um, it, it seems very logical from that standpoint, but, but here, here's some of the cons um, that people have noted. So one is no readiness to con- condone a bad habit. So th- th- these are the people who are saying, you know what? I'm not checking the donor box because somebody who drank their entire life, or somebody who was a drug addict, and they, you know, they cook their liver. Uh, why should I give them my liver? Why should I give them a second chance because of their bad habits? So it's kind of like punishing someone, although like you're dead, and it's this weird punishment type thing because like you're not around anymore. Um, I don't. I I don't know. You know, it's it's this this almost it's this almost weird spite i think um so the research says that five percent of organ donations are because of cases like that where people have have not taken care of their bodies um and 95 percent are because of other things you know viruses or whatever you know failures genetic things stuff like that so um but it's interesting because, yeah, someone who would just say, yeah, I'll, I'll take a perfectly good liver to the grave with me or to the crematorium uh, because I'm not going to give it to the alcoholic. So they knew what they were getting into. Uh, anyway, another point, mistrust of the medical profession and doctors. And, you know, I, I trust my doctor and the medical profession, and but... You know, again, here's where it linked off to one or two stories where it was saying that this is lucrative. I mean, you can sell um, body parts to, you know, research firms and that there are some people, who, you know, doctors who've been involved in cases like this, which, again, you you, you could find f- for anything, you know, for any profession. You're always going to find 
a few people who have done something, you know, really egregious to the, to the code of ethics of the profession. So, um, but you know, that, that was, that was it saying, I, I, I don't trust, I don't trust the, the, that. And th- the other part is of saying, um, you know, what if, what if the, um, so, you know, it's, it's, well, yeah, the, the mistrust of the medical profession too. Um, I don't think I said that, but anyway, let's go on. Confusion about, this, this was a big one, confusion about brain death and biological death. So this whole thing of, you know, when I said splashing the cold water in your ears and then like touching your eyes with a Q-tip and things like that, cotton swab, whatever, um, you know, that, that seems pretty primitive. Like, <laughs> I guess the brainwave test, but, you know, is there, this is what we know right now um, of the brain and, and the tools that we have to measure things. But what if, what if there's a level of consciousness w- w- that isn't showing up on the current machines that we have? So, and the fact that, you know, a doctor can make this call um, of brain death when the body could continue on in a vegetative state for years. Um, so it gets, it gets to that whole question of this, the subjective nature of making this call and what if they get it wrong? But I mean, again, haven't through history, I mean, there's obviously been people who have by just by percentages, by odds, um, who have been, you know, put in a morgue and buried, who have still been alive. I mean, um, they used to, what was it, in the Middle Ages, put a little rope down into the casket and then it would be above ground and connect to a bell. So if suddenly you became conscious, you could um, ring the bell and somebody would dig you out Um now, I, I I think that was probably obviously that was more of myth than reality. I mean, you didn't you weren't constantly out there digging people up as the bells are ringing. But um, this this whole way to maybe get people to accept that, and you know, I don't know, maybe because you did have people who were were stricken and unconscious and whatever, and then they would just perceive that and say, "Nope, they're dead" when they were unconscious. But I mean, again, I think today. We've got the equipment to pretty much nail it down, um, and you know, I, I guess I would have no intention to live in this vegetative state. Um, so, but yeah, this whole confusion about brain death um, has people kind of on the fence. It's like I think there's that episode of Kramer. Well, what if this or what if this or what if this? Would you stay or not stay or pull a plug or not pull a plug? But um, yeah, I, to me, it, it's, it's not that obscure, but I guess for some people it, it, it's like, well, if I, if I have a chance of opening my eyes and, you know, coming out of this, but again, I, I think that's just wishful thinking. Um, and I, I don't know. It, I, I just don't see that as, as realistic, but I, I can understand this whole confusion about brain death because again do we really know the level of consciousness but then if we can't tap into it and you know, the person is just there in a vegetative state um i don't know i don't know it, it 
it's interesting. It's interesting. I I think as time goes on, you know, that will be re- revealed through again the different diagnostic tools will be available to us. Um, uncertainty and lack of confidence. This this one kind of struck me too because some people are just feeling my organs aren't good enough. Like I'm not in good enough shape to be an organ donor. I'm too old to be an organ donor and stuff like that. And um, so yeah, people who 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 almost have this feeling of inferiority <laughs> of their own bodies, like you know, I don't want my body to be, you know seen by you know uh the harvest team and stuff like that because like i'm not fit like this would you know almost be an embarrassment it's it's just this weird logic that goes on or someone that's saying yeah i mean i should be taking better care of myself i should be out running and i ran tonight too by the way so like i biked in i ran um but uh yeah yeah this whole this whole lack of confidence thing so no i'm 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 pretty good with that. I'm, <laughs> yeah, yeah, I'm, I'm fine. Um, so I need a haircut again. Like my hair, it, at the, it, I was getting it cut like every five, six weeks. And now it's gotta be like every four weeks. If you're watching this on YouTube, like this was trimmed down about four weeks ago, like literally buzz cut down, like the sides were bare. And, you know, now it's just, it's crazy. And my hairstylist or person that cuts my hair um, for a long time. But she's like, you you have some of the fastest and growing hair and your hair is very thick um, of anyone like I've known. She's, there's, there's a few other people, but like, yeah, like you, your hair just grows like wild. So, um, which is great, you know. So maybe someone is, can take a hair transplant and get some of this stuff because, yeah, like okay. People I know my age, like most of my friends, <laughs> getting pretty thin on on top. So um, thankfully, uh, I've I've been blessed with uh, Grandpa Grandpa Reinhardt's hair. I've been told. Um, another con here, another reason to not be a, a donor: psychological discomfort. So people imagine their organs being harvested, and they're disgusted by the image of somebody, you know, a team of of surgeons opening them up and taking out what they need um, or not what they need, but you know, what, what's, what's able to be potentially um, used as a transplant organ or tissue or whatever. So that whole image, but I mean, that gets to the other part of, I, I, I talked about in a podcast and not to, uh, you know, I don't want to make this sound, um, how should I say insensitive, but it's like the other image, you know, in my mind is I, I can't imagine myself in a casket um, just, you know, turning into a skeleton over a number of years. And especially if it's these sealed caskets where the process is just delayed, I just think that doesn't make any sense. I, I So, you know, these whole things of the psychological discussion, again, you're you're not going to be around, okay? <laughs> so, um, another con: confusion with religion and cultural issues. So, saying you know the religion wouldn't allow it, but here's where 
again, research has shown most religions do embrace um, organ donation. And most, you know, pretty full, some with some limitations and whatever, but it's not really an issue of religion and not even so much an issue of, of culture. So that argument's kind of out the window, but it, it's some of those people of saying, like, um, you know, um, like I'm, I'm Catholic, for example, so thinking, well, for the resurrection, if you're not buried intact, I'm not going to be buried anyway, but I guess, um, then you won't be able to participate in the resurrection. So, like, well, I guess I miss out on that then. Um, but yeah, that's kind of not the case. You know, Catholicism says they're, they support um, being an organ donor. So, so my, my conclusion from this is, you know, I'm not changing my mind. I'm sticking with the organ donation um, box being checked on my driver's license, it's just a circle, or I don't know if it says organ donor. I don't know what it says. Um, and then, uh, you know, there, there's people on waiting lists for organs who die every day. And it's it's not a perfect system um, of, you know, you can only get organs so far away in so much time, and, and you know, it's whether or not it's accepted by the person, you know, where their body accepts it or rejects it. So was this all done in vain and whatever? And it's like, well, but you know what? You're trying. And I think generally people are, you know, the physicians, the people who are involved in the support structure of um, organ don donation are doing this, you know, for, for the right reasons. Um, also, we're, we're at this time where 3D printing of organs, of tissue, of, of live tissue, not that far off. Like, I, I actually think they can do this on kind of a small scale right now. But um, I, I would say by the time, I mean, if I live a natural life span and die, which kind of was inferred there, right? Um, but so no, like a natural lifespan, by the time I would pass, um, I think all of this organ donation from a live donor is, is probably going to be obsolete. I mean, you're, you're probably just going to be able to create these parts, these tissues, organs, whatever, um, and they're going to be created from the person's own genetic materials, so they're not going to be reject it, um, or through something that's going to be more, it would just be universally accepted. So I, I, I think we're kind of at this phase in this whole organ donation thing where it's kind of toward the end of the, the road. But yeah, I, I think, you know, really in, in another, well, let's say 40 to 50 years, would, would we have a need for an organ donor? I, I, I just don't think so. And so many things on the horizon, AI, artificial intelligence, um, projected to hit singularity, um, in like 2040, 2042. So, you know, kind of matching, um, some of the, the human thought processes, not consciousness, but, but you're going to have this, this just advanced robotics and AI and all of these types of things, um, 3d printing that are going to, I believe, kind of make all of this, this obsolete. But in, in the meantime, 
I think there's great merit in um, becoming an organ donor. And I guess here's here's the benchmark I use for that. Like if this was me, if I needed a heart, if I was in need of a liver, or if it was you know one of my my kids, um, I definitely would hope that somebody would would have checked that donor box and you know their life ending you know which is probably going to end um, tragically or unexpectedly um, but their life ending uh, would give an opportunity for either my life to continue or my kid's life to continue I would really be indebted to that person so um, how does this all fit into safety now that's one of one of the big things Obviously, it's a safety doc podcast, right? 75. And just, I'm trying to get some guests. And I've had success, like with some people I want as, as guests, but it's a scheduling thing. Um, you know, either, you know, they're, they're not available right now, um, or they're in a position where they're leaving like one organization and getting into another one. So they want to make sure they have both feet in the other organization before they come on the show because they're going to talk a little bit about some of the things from the previous organization. Um, you know, nothing that's, that's going to compromise obviously, um, security or ethics or whatever, but they want to be kind of out the door before they, they talk about some of those, those practices. So got some really great guests lined up. Um, and I want to have, uh, just, or not just, well, I want to have Justin Dooley back on. Um, but I want to have Preston Rice. Preston was on last year about this time we did the drone episode two parts and that was when I actually went out and filmed him demonstrating the drones. But, uh, so much has changed in the last year and he contacted me not too long ago and said, Hey, let's do another show. I probably wouldn't like actually do a live show filming the drone, but I'd, I'd have him down here in the studio. And since I've got the zoom mic and all that, we'd set it up a little bit better. The audio wasn't the greatest last time. I think we'd have good audio and uh, he can talk about all the new stuff that's kind of developed in the drone world. Um, and one of the exciting things also in the drone world is with uh, search and rescue, the ability to have these coordinate, coordinated, um, synchronized drone um, like reconnaissance of an area and then also kind of search and rescue. Because it, even up to like just recently, up until a year ago, it was very, very rare for drones to be able to work together. Like in certain quadrants and know like what one covered and what one didn't. And then to give all that information back into a system and have like kind of this mosaic put together that really still wasn't happening. Um, the military, it was January of 2017, um, was doing drone swarm tests. I think where they would drop, you know, from an aircraft, like a hundred drones, mini drones. And then they, those drones would kind of all act as, as one and then could do surveillance over an area and stuff like that. But there's huge potential in like rescue. So I want to get, get him in to talk about that. And, and then also the laws, like all of these, these laws and these signs that go up, like this is a drone free area and stuff like that. And I know he was saying some of those are legit and some aren't. I saw that on, when we were on vacation, I don't know if it was a Custer state park or somewhere where they had, you, you couldn't bring a, a drone. Like it wasn't allowed. I'm not, I don't know if it's Custer, but somewhere is some, some of the state park stuff. So I couldn't do it. No. So, um, and, I have uh, just a couple stories to, to share here at the at the end. Um, one, 
I was out running um, a few nights ago, and I'm running on the track, and the football field, something is starting to run alongside me, and it's low to the ground, and it's wide, so I kind of sensed what it was. Um, So it's a little bit in back of me, but it's kind of like angling toward me, and it's picking up speed and kind of waddling. So I, uh, I take my flashlight, put the light back. It's a skunk. It's a skunk. And I've encountered skunks before. I think I've talked about this, you know, running. And um, I've, I've, I'm going to have to rethink my game plan here but uh, because I don't want to, like, startle a skunk. That'd be very bad. Uh, so I just kept running. Run, forest, run. I took off. Like, I was flying and, uh, you know, got back home. So now I've been going to the track earlier while it's still daylight, but I mean, at some point that won't be feasible anymore. Um, but once you hit winter in the cold months, you don't have to worry about that anyway. So, you know, like when I run in winter, I don't have to worry about coming across skunks out at night because I mean, they're not searching for food because grounds frozen, snow covered, stuff like that. So, um, so yeah, that's, that's kind of a crazy, kind of a crazy thing. Um, so I am um, looking forward to a podcast series, which is coming out from Hector Solis, an awareness podcast on bullying. So he, he gets very in-depth also um, with a mother of a, a, a girl who was 12 and took her life um, due to, to being bullied. Um, so he has that series in production uh, right now, looking to release it later in summer. So um, check that out. It is a awareness podcast, and he is very thorough in, in what he does. A shout out again uh, to the 405media.com, the 405media.com. That's where the Safety Doc show is aired daily at 2 p.m. PST. You can go there and... It's basically a radio station of podcasters and listen to Larry Roberts of readily random been on his show. Um, and Larry, uh, always has intriguing guest, Aaron Clary, the Clary podcast. Uh, so go out and check the, the 405 media.com. I want to thank all of you for listening to the show for, considering the different aspects of, of safety being astute to what's rhetoric, the hype that's out there. And also, um, to kind of stand strong when you're, when your friends or other people are, are like in one position, but you're, you're not in that position here. Here's an example. Um, in my community, the school district has put bollards, B O L L A R D S, but they're basically to, they're what you see in front of uh, buildings, like if they they back in like big trucks and stuff. So they hit these things first instead of like hitting the the doors or the supports and things like that. So they're they're protective. But the district has put them in front of the main entrances to the school, like right in front of the main entrances uh, from a safety grant. And the thought is that um, this would prevent someone from driving a car through the, the main entrance, which it probably would. Um, but the, the fact is like that just doesn't happen. And two of these buildings already had 
superstructures outside, like you know covered entrances with with you know brick or cement um, pillars. So it wouldn't have happened anyway. Like there wasn't it, it wasn't going to happen. And these aren't there to protect like the sidewalk, so someone couldn't jump up on a sidewalk. You could still do that at any of these locations. And one of them actually they expanded the sidewalk. They made it wider. So I was looking at that saying, you know, here you have in front of the school these bollards, which will be very difficult to handle in winter to try to shovel around these things. It'll, it'll get icy. It's Wisconsin. These, and I'm try, you know, trying to get stuff in and out of a building. You're going to have to navigate around these things. And even if you had a bigger wheelchair, you kind of have to like shoot right through the middle to get there. I'm, to me, um, I want to I want to ask the district for the safety study where they came up with the priorities. Now it's kind of like playing with house money. It's free money because it's from the state that set aside 100 million for school improvements for a lot of stuff like this, which doesn't make sense. Um, so like what is your two-way radio communication like your digital radios? And there's not a school out there if you surveyed them, not survey. I mean I'm not a big fan of surveys, but I mean if you go and you're asking people at the schools um, you know, how are your t- radio communications? Most likely they're going to say, um, there's some dead spots in the schools. So maybe you need a repeater or they still have analog or a mix of analog digital and, or they can't speak between buildings. Um, or people just say, I wish we had more of these radios. Like I just wish we had more radios. And we also have students, you know, with, um, you know, violent tendencies or things like this. And so we, if we had more radios, we could get more people, to respond if something happened. Um, so that's one of the things and, and just your, you know, what's your threat assessment? Like and I, in the district here where my daughters go to school as a parent, there is not an online threat assess, you know, there's, there's not an online threat input system. And if there is, I haven't been educated to it and I'm a safety expert. So they haven't done a good job of getting that out to parents. So I'm just thinking what, what other things did you consider and like, how did you determine that this is what you'd ask for? And then also was it like you asked for other things and they were denied, but the bullers were improved, approved. Um, but again, these things are going to cause more headache than benefit. And my guess is they didn't do a comprehensive study. Um, and, and that this got marketed to them and that there are other areas of need that, that, got neglected, the prioritization matrix. And this, this is the whole rhetoric with safety. Working on uh, wrapping up my book right now with my editor, that's coming along great. I mean, working every day on that right now, Lessons of Lower Manhattan. And we give some examples. I mean, you could go into endless into these things, but um, this whole thing of trying to fortify your way to safety, it it's impossible. You cannot do it. You cannot fortify your way to safety. Um, so you have to have sense making. This has been the Safety Doc Podcast. 
with author, radio show host, and leading safety expert, Dr. David Perotti. Remember to check back each week for the latest, best, and most bizarre practices in safety preparation and crisis response. You can find Dr. Perotin on Twitter at SafetyPhD. And remember, the truth will keep you safe.